0: Welcome back to another exciting edition of the Pointless Exercise Podcast. It's time to remember this crap with Mike Donahue. Mike, how are you? Doing
1: well, Andy. Thanks. How are you?
0: Never been better. Good. So we are. What do we got? Down we have eleven seasons left. We are, down, are down to real. eleven. Out
1: of, out, of, out of this ridiculous uh this sort of slapdash project, um, basically throwing a dart on the wall or spinning a wheel, as it were. But yeah, it's kind of uh, uh, kind of hard to believe that we've done twenty-one of these cataloged uh, entire seasons of Cub uh, lore history on yes. its own individual season, and uh, we're getting down to the nitty-gritty here. So,
0: such that it is
1: such that it is
0: cubs lore
1: yeah i uh you know it's kind of sprinkled now it's had it's had its own sort of uh movements early on we just kept getting the 90s so you know kind of worked out to we were able to really kind of fashion that narrative consistently kind of pound at some of the themes and then uh we made up for it with the 80s but now there's kind of a a, uh a distribution that seems a little more um, you know reasonable with eight you know 11 seasons left uh, uh, still a little heavy on the 80s but now they're just down to a couple seasons the 90s a couple seasons the aughts so uh you know could get anything tonight kids
0: <laughs> could get I'm say that, typically i i make some reference and then we end up hitting that and it sounds like yes i, I knew uh, what was going to happen and i don't
1: well, I was gonna make. I was gonna try to tie, yeah, tie in. Never mind. I'll bring it up later. The wheel has been spawned.
0: Oh. Eighty-three. A three. So ni- nineteen eighty-three. What do you remember? Five quick facts about. I remember the, f- watching Ferguson.
1: I remember watching Ferguson Jenkins take the mound on opening day for the first time in my life. And also the first time in 10 seasons on opening day um, in 1983. Uh, Things didn't get off to a great start by early May. The season jumped the tracks and uh, the Cubs manager uh, tended lost his cool early in the season uh, in 1983. Carmelo Martinez got called up and made his major league debut in September. And he hit a home run in his first official at-bat. But not played at parents because uh, he walked uh, the first time up. 83 uh, was the year in which the um, four foot nine and uh, weeble wobbled Ron Say wandered into the Cubs Cl- oh, yeah. clubhouse, held down the hot corner, yes. pushing Ryan Sandberg to second base and uh, leading to Sandberg being the first player in major league history to win a gold glove in his first season after moving from a new position. Um, and uh, 1983 was the season in which, uh, in Johnny Bench's last appearance at Wrigley Field in August, um, a guy that had been traded for Doug Bird, who had earlier been traded for Rick Russell, Chuck Rainey, came within one out of throwing the the first no hitter in 11 years uh, at Wrigley Field until, uh, the Reds, Eddie Milner, uh, lined, I believe the first pitch up the middle, um. Uh, would have been the first no hitter that I would have come that close to myself but those are five facts and a lot more that we'll get into interesting season second year of Dallas Green and uh yeah let's go
0: was was Johnny Bench playing third base or catching
1: uh I believe he was have they given uh, up the
0: third base ex- experience I
1: think he did go back to catcher I I want to I want to examine I want to cuz I remember it was such a big deal and I just you know, Johnny Bench was, uh, you know, I guess he'd be have to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. He was kind of a broke the mold, as you know, as a catcher. You know, I remember my dad, uh, you know, who was an old school guy and had his proclivities for the older guys, was always sort of impressed by, oh. you know, something about Johnny Bench.
0: <laughs> oh, no. Uh, Alex Trevino caught because Johnny was playing third.
1: He was playing third, yep. but I, my, I, because I knew that Johnny did go to third. He was like, oh, well, we got to save Johnny's knees. I think what really the rea- reality was that Johnny Bench was done by the time they, it was like yeah. they, it was too late when they moved him to catcher, went to third base. And now that I think about it, it strikes me as kind of funny that uh, for a guy, he was, he must have been like on the Randy Hundley, Leo DeRocher plan because he was a great player. And he, he really was, I think, a little bit of a mold shatterer because he was a, a very good, I believe, offensive player. You know, OPS as I'm seeing what he won the MVP in 70 and 72. Uh forklift would tell you both times he edged out Billy Williams of the Cubs. Uh, you know, a couple of p- over 900 OPS. Those are the only two of his career, but he was a catcher. I think he was a great catcher. Uh but then all of a sudden it was like 1981-82. Oh, we got to move Johnny to third base. What's funny about that is that in the 1975 World Series, uh Johnny's counterpart was Carlton Fisk. Uh, also a future Hall of Famer, although not as certifiable as Bench was because Bench just had greater prime seasons. But uh, Carlton Fisk, in spite of Paul Carrollson's uh, penchant to try to move him to left field shortly after Bench moved to third base, did end up going back to catcher and uh, and caught quite a few games. But Johnny did – I was trying to see the defensive because it was a big deal. But certainly by 83, uh, I I just – it was a coincidence that it happened to be his last game. And then Chuck Rainey went out and stole his thunder.
0: Yeah, Johnny led the nationally in homers in 70, 72. Led it in RBIs three times. One, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten gold gloves. He was an all stars last year. I'm sure he deserves Okay. 255-08-432. <laughs> uh,
1: here's the thing. 82 is the first. He appears in uh, actually during the strike shortened. Uh, no, he moved to first base. They first moved to first. They had him a little bit in the outfield every now and then. But, yeah, it looks like 82 was, uh, you know, 107 games uh, at third base. But uh, that was 83. Yeah, he only went back to the plate for five. So he was pretty much done. Yeah. So...
0: Well, you mentioned, the, you mentioned in '83, Sandberg is the f- first player ever to win a Gold Glove at a new position, only because Frank Schwindel was robbed last year and didn't didn't win it at first base.
1: In it's, what position did Frank did Frank actually did he really actually I don't he's to? He
0: changed a long time ago. In but uh, ironically, Frank was a catcher. The one thing he can't do wow is catch a baseball. Uh, he must have been a great catcher,
1: right? When he was, he was like two, and he had a Velcro ball and a mitt <laughs> that uh, <laughs> made sure that sure it he stuck was, to it.
0: I'm sure, he led the Big East and everything at Saint John's.
1: But Big East? He went to Saint John. He's a Johnny. He's a
0: Johnny. Oh, you know that.
1: Yeah. See, a New Yorker. Is he a New York kid, Frank Schwindel? I would never have guessed it. He looks like he uh, fell off a turnip well, of truck. He,
0: he looks like is that. They had to use the forceps. is what he looks like. <laughs> That's what I'm
1: saying. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, aside from the Johnny Bench, Frank Schwindel cop, I'm, I'm, uh, I am I'm, guess we didn't expect that, you know, people would not have expected us to start this off with a five-minute excursion of Johnny Bench, but at the same time, who would be surprised?
0: Where was he born?
1: Frankie. Frankie. Not Johnny Bench. No, not Johnny, Johnny
0: Bench. Bench. Oklahoma boy. I think we should just a, talk and, about the – let's make it a Johnny Bench castle, we'll just talk about the baseball bunch. Baseball bunch. Krylon paint. It'll be great.
1: <laughs> well, it's got to come up at, one, at some time. And quite frankly, he, he was still playing. I'm sure the baseball bunch was out in
0: 1983, right? Oh, yeah. He, he was on baseball bunch <laughs> as a player, and then after he retired, both.
1: Yeah, because I, I feel like the baseball Eventually. bunch was just starting to be a little babyish for me or like it wasn't it still wasn't it still was never as cool as this week in baseball. But it was like okay, well, it's new program. There's, there's another, hat, another hat. I remember when the baseball bunch debuted and at that point uh Twib uh, had this week in baseball had already kind of reached, I feel like iconic status in a five or six, however many years this week in baseball was on. So it was always, I think what debuted across the country and their at various, uh, you know, superstation networks or whatever. And, uh, and then eventually there was a new program with uh, Johnny, it came out in 1980, the yeah, baseball 85. So went that far. So yeah, he was, Johnny was uh, preparing for, I don't know, just I mean I just, assume
0: they just they burned those off to... all in spring training, right? <laughs> this record of the season's worth.
1: Had to be, right? I, ne- I never considered it, to be honest with you.
0: Uh
1: the chicken would have, of course been uh you know, that was part that was the deal, right? Johnny wasn't just Johnny Bench. He had to sh- you know, share a little bit of the line late with uh, Ted Janulius. The the former San Diego chicken. Yeah. Um,
0: um People with cub ties who were guests on uh, the bunch include Dusty Baker, Bill Caudill, Andre Dawson, who showed the kids how to embalm a body, uh, <laughs> Goose Gossage, David I Hubs, was Bill Mattel, really cu- Matthews. Wow, a lot of uh, cub connections. I, forga-
1: I, I forgot the veritable who's who of uh, cameos that Johnny would... Uh... Would have on the I got to be honest with you because you know this was kind of at the peak of our early baseball playing days. I don't recall that I ever learned anything myself from the baseball bunch. And it did try to take a bit of an educational no, approach. Well, I
0: learned Ron Lafleur was on. He gave babysitting tips, right? Yeah. My family gets that <laughs> joke, well, <laughs> he went to him and his wife went to jail for child abandonment. They just left the kid at home for a few days while they went off and snorted things and the cops caught him and they went to jail That would be the next. second
1: time LaFleur's in jail cuz the first time was much more celebrated of course right when he before he had sort of reemerged with the uh
0: and uh we have, well the Ted Williams one is famous um he, Ted takes wears like a raincoat over his Red Sox jersey and takes bang practice. He's just ripping line drives all over. It's pretty good. <laughs> I'll find it. it. I'll, probably, I'll stick it on that.
1: I've, I don't know that I re- even remember seeing that in real time when it happened. I must have. It must have, it must have glazed across my eyes. Because I don't think I missed too many episodes of Saturday morning, you know. Right? You'd watch the uh, the three different installments of the the forty year old Warner Brothers Bugs Bunny cartoons, and they would kind of roll into this week in baseball, or, or I think the baseball bunch came in came first, and then this week in baseball, and then usually actual baseball games. Uh, it was, yeah, it was a, it was a glory. But I don't know that I remember uh, the Ted Williams uh, cameo. Maybe I couldn't appreciate it at the time, but I loved the idea of a, of a grizzly, yeah. probably a little grump, grumpy old. T- Do I get to at least hit some batting? Press? I want to hit <laughs> baseballs. Can I hit some baseballs?
0: Um, yeah, cause it was kind of the same phenomenon as, uh, as Monday Night Football, where you'd watch this week in baseball and hope you would see a cub. Do something like they would show great plays. It's kind of like watching Howard Cosell do the halftime highlights, and just hope that like one of the Bears showed up in it.
1: I was just going to say that that's a good cop. The uh, this week in baseball highlight with the Howard Cosell and Monday Night Football from the day before.
0: Yeah, yeah I remember you know how like on ESPN they would call things web gems, uh-huh. and uh, you know on GN if Harry saw a guy made a diving catch he would yell, "That's going to be on." this week in baseball next week No, harry never did that right he could have but he, but
1: he could have and i'm sure there may have been some broadcasters around the league at that point that, point that would have been you know and that sort of loose federation of like uh, continental telecommunications and programming and entertainment that, i mean this week in baseball would make its way into pretty much most any american home it was you know it was pre cable so yeah, it was, You could talk about it, and I, if you were a baseball fan, though, it really. I, I, did I hear? Was it you and Dave Brown that were talking about the theme music? Um, it, because I did. I went down a rabbit hole, and it was pretty. It's pretty goddamn hilarious that. There's a, two distinct soundtracks to This Week in Baseball. The beginning one is not the same song as the, the end. The beginning was just some jingle that some dude wrote up for some uh, uh, defunct game show that we can't even remember. Mm. But it didn't, didn't, dun, dun, right? And, like, that's the one that's, like, the Monday Night Football. Dun, 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 dun. Like, it's sort of... And that may have been more seriously composed, but the story with this week in baseball was na it was completely just some studio musician you know wrangled up. And then the closing credits is a little bit more sort of melodic and stringy, like that's a that's
0: completely different. That that one's called gathering crowds, I think.
1: That's it. But, but it was originally created. I thought it was originally created for just something else that didn't take off or something. I forget. Um, but both of those sort of in a vacuum, both of those independent, like, I don't think it's just pure nostalgia for me to say. they. I mean, it is nostalgia. But, uh, you know, hearing that, hearing those bookend, you know, a half hour of Mel Allen. How about that? <laughs> Did we, did we find uh, a,
0: Google right. <laughs> if you want to, if
1: you want to see Ted Williams. You want to see... Yeah, that's the closing credit. Okay. And you can show like people, Brian, right, Brian so, Downing, catching a ball over the wall. For right, the so Angels. Nobody's
0: going to believe this. Um, given what, uh, Oh, maybe it won't be on here. So the other one is a song called Jet Set. We'll see if it's um, sounds like it something is.
1: John T- did. John Tess write it?
0: No. Oh, what do you hear? Who did? Ding, Get ding. to the bridge, guys. There Everybody it knows. is. Yep. All right. What do you hear? Who wrote this? was written by a guy named Mike Vickers. This is too perfect. He was a member of the band Manfred Mann.
2: Oh,
0: <laughs>
1: amazing! is that right? Yes. I'm not, all right. Well, that's a great coincidence in light of how much your, your coinage seems to have caught on a little bit. Uh but it also blows my mind that a member of the Manfred man earth band who had a number of big hits, including the Bob Dylan pen, Quinn, the Eskimo uh, would actually write that jingle and yep. which would become iconic, maybe not for artistic reasons, but certainly for cultural.
0: Wow. Yeah. And we confirmed on the, on the pod with, so we talked about this, we talked about the Manfred man and why I called it that. And that Boog and JD have both started to use it now. And um so we we looked up uh if there really was a manfred man and there was he's a keyboard player he's kind of like and is the band is M-A-N-N, real man right yes his real name is not it's it's manfred something else okay and it's but uh, then we talked about how um and then we confirmed that it was still accurate that uh, Bruce Springsteen's only number one song is blind by, by the light, light performed by manfred man
1: Wait, the only song that Springsteen himself song he wrote, wrote that's that the number has gone one? to number
0: one because "Dance in the Dark" only got to number two.
1: No kidding, and yeah, all those other songs had, he's he not... never
0: had a number one hit.
1: Wait, all those songs on that album never went to number one. Nope. "Born in the USA." Nope. Um, what's the one? We had a parody one in my family. I forget it was my brother or sister about Lee Smith. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I throw fire. Pretty clever.
0: Yeah, no, I'm on fire, as uh, was written about Craig Hodges. <laughs> All right, so now we have yet to really talk about the 1983
1: Cubs. Good point. We'll get there. So probably <laughs> yeah.
0: So this is yeah, so- not, Fergie threw, got his 3,000 strikeout in 82. Right. Correct.
1: Fergie arrived in eighty two. It was part we discussed it. You can go back, kids, Dallas Greens first, everybody was ushered in, it was all brand new. Cubs have blue tops. And uh Fergie pitched a home opener in eighty two. And Fergie it. went out and had a good season in eighty two. Uh, And then a funny thing happened between 82 and 83 is that Dallas green, as much as I put him on a, on a pedestal, he um, he made some mistakes, like when he didn't have, um, you know, Joe Carter and Mel Hall have cleared waivers before the Sutcliffe trade. Um, You know, I think the fact that we kind of, unearthed it when he should have probably really given John Vukovic the job after he fired Jim Fry for sure instead of giving it to retread Gene Michael but at the time Green was criticized because he also he seemed to be asleep at the wheel protecting players but he didn't protect Fergie for some reason after the 82 season and the White Sox were supposedly in rumors to grab him, And it was a little bit of a scuttlebutt in Chicago uh, in the off season. And, and then the Cubs and Sox ended up making a trade, which the media sort of characterizes as, is as green dealing from a, a position of disadvantage uh, in that green had to give up such wholesome goodness as Scott Fletcher and uh, Randy Martz, And I don't know, a couple of other guys, and we got back and returned them a very mustachioid uh, Warren Brewster and Steve Trout, which actually would pay off. And all of that was to make sure that nobody would steal our beloved Fergie because, uh, yes, he was slated to start uh, on opening day uh, in 1983, the, the actual season opener, which, you know, is really kind of fascinating because he had uh you know left chicago in 73 i think it was 10 years between opening day starts got to be some sort of a record but it was the first one in our lifetime and uh, i don't think fergie's 83 was as good as is uh as 82 you're right he got his th- or, uh, he's got his three thousand strikeout in his first season um and he was also inching towards 300 wins i think he finished the season at 284 and he went to spring i think he pretty went to spring training in 84 so close, Fergie and Rick Russell were to uh, pitching for the Cubs in the playoffs. But Dallas Green uh, often would, would not be given to sentiment to his credit, and uh, and he cut Fergie. Fergie was kind of at the end of the line, but he was the opening day starter.
0: So the uh, you are right. The Cubs got off to a hot start. They were uh, five and thirteen heading into a Friday game against the Dodgers. And uh, they would lose that game, four to three. Did they blow a late lead?
1: Yeah, there's something that happened. A uh, few, and I only know a lot of the narrative that's sort of been established in the local uh, Chicago media, especially in light of uh, Les Grabstein having passed away recently. Because it's just one of those things that he'll always be a, as his work as a reporter. Uh, you know, he'll always probably first be associated with the events that transpired after this game, and as Grabstein tells the story, there was nobody in the Cubs' dugout because number one, Mike Marshall supposedly had won the game late. I don't know if I haven't pulled it up yet, uh, so but Mike Marshall like... was a local guy. He was from, uh, I think, Buffalo Grove, and he was also apparently, maybe not in 83, maybe more in 88, but you know, just fun fact, at some point was dating Belinda Carlisle, who had been a member oh, of the yeah. Gogos a breakout star in her own, in her own right mike marshall not to be compared with the mike marshall the pitcher who right. appeared in 106 games about 10 years earlier but he was a local local guy in chicago point was i think it was maybe his first game in chicago or something like that right. so all he- the local media followed him after the game which like kind of like, you know leads to the where Grabstein was one of the very few people that was in the Cubs clubhouse after the game. So
0: Marshall homered in the fifth off the great Paul Moscow.
1: M o s k a u.
0: Yes, and then an inning later, that motherfucker Ken Landro he hit a home run yeah. off Paul Moscow. And I'm sure a uh, ten year old me was pissed. Maybe that's why I hated Ken. You Landreau are you just so you just had a,
1: a seething a hatred for Ken. I just hated
0: Ken Landro. So the game yeah was I didn't Landro. Game was tied in the eighth. And Lee Smith was in. And uh, fucking Ken Landro, his double delete off the inning. Dusty flew out. Landro went to third. Um, Oh, that was with Steve Lake pitching. Uh, Lee Smith comes in. No, wait. This isn't right. Steve Lake. Oh, sorry. Not an 83. Yeah, I'm reading the wrong shit here. Um, Yeah, Lake did not come in to pitch. He he took over a catcher. Tom Veriser had run for Jody. So, Lake comes in to catch. I looked at the wrong thing. Um, Bill Campbell. I had no
1: idea that Steve Lake was an 83 Cub. Okay.
0: Soup gave up the double to Landro, and then Dusty got him to second. Then they bring in Lee, and he threw a wild pitch with Pedro Guerrero batting, and that scored the eventual winning run. And the Cubs, in the bottom of the eighth, went one, two, three, and in the bottom of the ninth, um, with one out, Moreland singled, and the Johnstone flew out. And Scott Thompson struck out.
1: Scott with one T, with one T. And so the Boo Birds were out. So uh, let's provide some context here. We we you know like to kind of give an idea of what's going on at the time. This is not your. Uh, this is not your mom and dad's Wrigley, or it is your mom and dad's Wrigleyville. When Wrigleyville wasn't even a term that existed, probably in '83 uh it didn't have lights dallas green was making rumblings about getting lights but you know the neighborhood was very much it was pretty endemic uh culturally how um you know how just you know where they're you know where the neighborhood was at is like night and day from where it was today the ballpark was not the you know thirty thousand uh seat bear garden that uh it would become uh but you know, it had a little bit of uh, lore. The bleacher bums. The play had been out for five or six years it, because it was the only place that didn't have lights. Um, it, you know, it, it was. The, it could be a festive atmosphere, even if it was only five, six, seven thousand people. But also the fact that it was during the day when most of the people in America were working, uh, definitely sort what, of. What
0: percent uh, would
1: you say right, Give or take, uh, what is it, 15% of uh, 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 people that, you know, might uh, have something better to do than spend uh, a productive afternoon watching and booing uh, grown men. And, and, and so the Cubs themselves, I think, you know, they they turned things around in 82, right? Like, we've done 80 and 81. Those are back-to-back miserable seasons. The Wrigley family was checked out. It was absolutely probably, I think we determined, it's probably really one of the truly lowest points of the franchise. So there was really nowhere to go to, but up. And it really started, you could feel it was not just a change that made you feel good. It was like a like a positive change. You mentioned Bill Campbell and Fergie Jenkins, uh, you know, big free agent signings that didn't exist before. And they, and they were okay in 82 they didn't suck and so you're thinking maybe we can build on this and they get off to this 5 and 14 start and it pretty much just bubbles over with a frustrating loss to the dodgers and uh or er- early in his second season um you know he was a little bit uh a little bit out of sorts one might say and so okay. yeah and like i said after the game there's not a whole lot going on in the Cubs clubhouse because local hero Mike Marshall's there. However, Les Grabstein and one or two other people uh, happen to, uh, you know, happen to follow the Cubs manager, and that's where uh, uh, they would. Those two, Lee Ilya and Les Grabstein, would be forever inextricably uh, linked.
2: I'll tell you one fucking thing. I hope we get fucking hotter than shit just to stuff it up them three thousand fucking people that show up every fucking day. Three thousand. Because if they're the real Chicago fucking fans, they can kiss my fucking ass right downtown and print it. They're really, really behind you around here. My fucking ass. What the, what the fuck am I Stark. supposed to do? Go out there and let my fucking players get destroyed every day and be quiet about it for the fucking nickel dime people to show up? The motherfuckers don't even work. That's why they're out of the fucking game. I only go out and get a fucking job and find out what it's like to go out and earn a fucking living. Eighty-five percent of the fucking world's working; the other fifteen come out here. Where does
1: he get that number, by the way? It's a
2: fucking <laughs> playground for the cocksuckers. <laughs> Rip them motherfuckers! Rip them cocksuckers! What like the fucking players? Got guys busting their fucking ass and them fucking people too, and that's become my fucking ass. They talk about the great fucking support that the players get around here. I haven't seen it this fucking year. The name of the game is hit the ball, catch the ball, and get the fucking job done. Right now, we have more losses than we have wins. The fucking changes that have happened in the cup organization are multifold. True. All right, they don't show because we're 5-14. and 14. And unfortunately, that's the criteria of them the 7, 15 motherfucking percent that come out to date baseball. The other 85% are earning a living. That's really good It'll take more than a 5-13 and 13 or 5-14 and 14 to destroy the makeup of this club. I guarantee you that. There's some fucking pros out there that want to fucking play this game. But you're stuck in a fucking stigma of the fucking Dodgers and the Phillies. And the Cardinals and all that cheap shit. All these motherfucking editorials about say and fucking uh, the phillyitis and all that shit—that it's sickening. It's unbelievable. It really is. It's a disheartening fucking situation we're in right now. Five and fourteen doesn't negate all that work. You've got 143 fucking games left. What I'm trying to say is don't rip them fucking guys out there. Rip me! If you want to rip somebody, rip my fucking ass. But don't rip them fucking guys, because they're giving everything they can give. But once we hit that fucking groove, it'll flow. And it will flow, the talent's there. I don't know how to make it any clearer to you. I'm frustrated, I'll guarantee you I'm frustrated. It'd be different if I walked in this room every day at 8.30 and saw a bunch of guys that didn't give a shit. They give a shit, and it's a tough
1: national league. It na- he's way more right than he's wrong. Yeah. You know, it's like,
0: what was the. Listen,
1: it's really a shame. Uh, I mean,. Because he's right. Like, they were mired. What, what did he say at one point? Like, they were uh, mired. I, he was making an allusion, to, like, how fucking shitty that culture was, right, and turn it around. I like, I like how he's taking shots at reporters because there was, like, a weird thing going on where people had to bug up their ass about the Phillies and the Dodgers. They were the best teams. I remember, like, <clears throat> Herman Franks, uh, like, bitched about – like Barry foot walking around the clubhouse because he used to be with the Phillies, you know, walk time at the Philly where there was a real sensitivity to the teams that were really good. Then I don't know. I don't quite understand what those references are. You know, he's like, you're getting caught in the stigma of the Phillies and the the Cardinals. You really even weren't that the Cardinals were defending champions, but they hadn't really, it was the Phillies and Dodgers throughout the seventies. And that's what like, that's where Dallas green came from. That's where Lee Elia came from. Or half the Cubs rosters or Phillies. His point, I think, is that the writers were denigrating that, like, oh, and like, w- w-, and he's not wrong. Like, you're fucking denigrating it because it's different, and like, you're you're glorifying how crappy it was, be- like, it before. Like, you know, it's it, it's hard for a lot of people who didn't live through it to imagine really how ingrained that inert culture was of ap- like malaise, and like they're almost afraid of getting in contact with like a uh, winning uh, tradition. If that makes a lick of sense but what's your take?
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, the first thing you listen to it and it's like, well, Lee's, Lee's got a lot of good points. Um, and you, know, he doesn't, he does survive for a while, but he doesn't survive for that long. He gets fired. And, um, who knows if he, you know, it's one of those butterfly flaps its wings and, um, you know, maybe if if he's still around instead of Jim Fry, given the same talk, team, maybe they're We brought that up. I, I don't think. I think Jim Fry sucked. Um, you know what?
1: You you you're. We brought that. We brought that up when we talked at eighty two. We talked because we, you know you're gonna. Brush up on the 84, and I am increasingly over time becoming of that opinion. And I'm kind of enjoying like this new perspective that I've sort of been looking at this through a different lens. That it really is a shame that Elia lost his because that kind of you know, Green wasn't going to fire him right away and give people the satisfaction. Yeah. And the Cubs, to his credit, to, Green, to Lee Elia's credit. They did turn it around, which I think we'll probably kind of take a look at that they things kind of gelled a little bit. He was so he was right. He knew it was a good team. That's why he was so frustrated. Um but I think his feet his fate was sealed that day. They would have had to have gone hotter than shit, which they didn't really do. They they did no, get they good didn't. for a while. He was right. They did regret they did regress back. They get close to 500, I think. But basically, when the dust is settled, and then like Green could save some face or whatever. Keep in mind, it's Green's first hire. I've always said, if you fire, as soon as you you know you fire your first hire, you know you're one step closer to the to the line yourself. Uh, But I also think he didn't want to give the media the satisfaction of firing him right away, and he did give him a chance. And and Ely did sort of pull it around, and they were a decent team that summer, I think, until. The wheels came off, and then once the wheels came off, it was kind of safe for Green to let him go. So that rant really did, uh, like you said, it did pretty much wrap it up for Lee, but not right away. And they did, they were not a bad team that summer. So,
0: yeah, and I think my, to my,
1: that's
0: probably not fair. I was a kid, but I, my I don't even know what the word is, my uh evaluation of Jim Fry's managing is colored by the fact that he, after he was manager, he was an announcer and he was terrible. He just listened to him talking. He thought this guy doesn't know shit. And then he was a general manager and he fucked everything up. Destroyed the franchise. It probably has more to do with it than that. So, well,
1: yeah, I was not critical of him at the time. I was starstruck by the fact that he had led the Royals well, to the World yeah. Series and well, stuff. And, they and won. so,
0: I mean, regardless, I mean, they and they won. We so, never see uh, yeah. it, and there they are in the yeah. playoffs.
1: But in retrospect, I think you know maybe a little overrated. And and who knows? Like if Elia was allowed to grow with this team, you know maybe. Uh, I don't see I, I don't see that trajectory. Like he would have totally handled the veterans that all of a sudden started populating that club. I mean, Say came along this year, and then you know in '84 they got you know all those guys yeah, that would have probably worked just as well with Ely, if not better than with Fry. So,
0: yeah. So they the '83 Cubs started 0 and six. They lost uh, the opener. They opened with Montreal. For two I remember games, that lost Steve Stone's
1: Steve Stone's first game as a Cub, by the way, he joined Harry in oh, yeah. Harry's second year.
0: Yep. Then they got swept in four games in Cincinnati. Uh, they finally won. They won a game at Montreal, and then they lost. They were so they were zero six to start. Five and fourteen after the loss we just heard. Yep. Um, they would win the next day, so they uh, Chuck Rainey beat Fernando Valenzuela. They won seven to two. Um, but you're right. So they muddled along for a while, but then they uh, on the 19th of June they beat the Cardinals. They they won two in a row against the Cardinals, and they were 30 and 32. They got two games of first of uh, 500. They were. I
1: see. Dick. I see. Dick Ruthven was the winning pitcher. Yeah. Which again reminds us of how uh, earlier the trade deadline was because I just know for a fact that some Dick Ruthven was a recent acquisition mid-season. Mm-hmm. The Cubs had dealt. The next season's American League Cy Young Award winner and MVP for Ruthven. Uh, And so Willie Hernandez, uh, after about four or five years, was traded, uh, you know, well, certainly before June 19th.
0: But then uh, things went bad. They back-to-back walk-off losses. Oh, Oh, that was a doubleheader against the Pirates. Was Ooh. Rob Makoviak there? Did he hit home runs?
1: Wow. That's um, a good call. I don't remember that doubleheader. I get bits and pieces, but I, I I had to pull one up. At least in game one, the Cubs uh, blew the lead in the seventh, and then they lost it in the tenth. So, you know, that's not fun. No. That's too bad. I almost, I almost want to get mad at who uh, who blew the game in the seventh because, well, probably Fergie. Well, Fergie only went five that day. Mike Perley and his mustache couldn't hold it.
0: How about this? So, because of the double header, that was a five game series against the Pirates.
1: And okay, and we, and we discussed the Pirates in eighty two, I think, or eighty one, like after the strike, before the strike, the Pirates were awesome. And then the moment they came back after the strike, um they were they were bad except actually I wanted to see that second uh
0: well, it says it's the first game of that doubleheader lost. was a was a makeup from a game that was scheduled on April fifteenth, Tax Day. It was cold, too cold to play.
1: That's all it is.
0: So they moved it to June twentieth.
1: And right? even June twentieth, there's only fifty eight hundred in the uh, in the Three River Stadium, and the Pirates are twenty four or twenty four and thirty six. Yeah, they're bad.
0: Beautiful Three River Stadium.
1: Beautiful Three River Stadium. It's like and then, yeah, so on the back end, uh, the Cubs actually rallied in the second game to tie it
0: in the ninth before yeah. losing it. Um. They lost in the 13th um, when Bill Campbell gave up a baseless loaded single to future Cub Marvel Win. Your guy. Drove in future Dale Barra. Cub. Dale paused to stop and sniff the foul line on his way home. And Correct. Still made it. Right,
1: wasn't Dale Barra also uh, involved in the infamous play in which Carlton Fisk tagged two base runners out at home on the I same he was. play with its seconds apart? Yeah, I thought you were going to ask. Was he he involved might have been in the wired
0: fast. uh Keith Hernandez. Um, remember the the tr- the drug trial in F- Pittsburgh?
1: Yeah, we got to we got to save that for '85. Yeah, no. that was in '85. Yeah, was Dale was in that too. Did you? Did you see who the starting pitcher was, though, in this Pirates game on June 20th, 1983, the second half of the doubleheader?
0: Starter for the Pirates. Uh, no, for the Cubs. Oh, no.
1: Pirates was Jim Bibby. He was a long-time long time good, good uh, solid pitcher, Jim Bibby was. But the Cubs pitcher was a rookie who was pretty much on the team the whole year, and he started some games. And he, like, wasn't bad, but he was kind of nondescript. And uh, oh, yeah. and he
0: Craig yeah,
2: he ended up getting pa-
1: right? He ended up getting packaged with the aforementioned Carmelo Martinez in a three way trade that yielded Scott Sanderson to the Cubs. But then Craig Lefferts, of course, would throw blanks yep. in game five, uh, in the NLCS the next season. So it always comes full circle.
0: It was a great trade. That was, uh, the Cubs traded. Carmelo Martinez, well, um, Craig Lefferts and Fritzy Connolly. Remember the great Fritzy Connolly.
1: It sounds like one of Harry's drinking buddies. I, I, did, can he do that?
0: Yep, Fritz Harry. Connelly. Sorry, we're, we're trading Fritzy.
1: Hey, Bob Prince really needs a guy. Ever <laughs> since you know, so and so, some yins are died.
0: So the. The Padres Anderson. sent Gary Lucas to the Expos. The Expos sent Al Newman to the Padres, and the Expos sent Scott Sanderson to the Cubs.
1: Not a bad deal for the Cubs. Sanderson uh, was pitching against them in 83. Seemed like a good pitcher, local guy. And, and uh, Craig
0: you know. would be involved in another huge trade just a few years later when he was traded oh. uh, by the Padres to the Giants. He was traded with Dave Drovecki and Kevin Mitchell to the Giants for Chris Brown. Remember him? Mark Davis? Yeah, I remember that Chris third baseman. Keith Comstock and current Padres announcer Mark Grant, also from the Chicago area. Right,
1: That is a bit of a blockbuster. I remember Chris Brown. was a third baseman.
0: Oh, I didn't know he
1: was a local guy. Yep. Chris Brown? Really? No,
0: No. Mark Grant.
2: Oh,
1: that's right. So... Blockbuster. Giants, by the way, 83. I just know they were they were terrible. Lefferts would
0: also eventually get be in a trade where he got traded to the Orioles for a player named later, and Eric Schulstrom, and the player to be named later was a future Cub who got the only hit in Kerry Wood's 20 strikeout game.
1: Ricky Gutierrez Ricky was traded Gutierrez. for Craig Lefferts? Yep. Wow. This that. is why I'm so glad to do this. That's incredible! Wow, so Craig, so that's uh, that's almost some Kevin Bacon shit because yeah. I don't associate six degrees Lefferts. of Craig Lufferts. Who knew? Right, I don't associate Craig Lufferts with like existing beyond like nineteen eighty nine for summer. I kind of did remember when you started talking about the big trade. I'm like, did he get traded to the Giants? So yeah, happy uh, uh, to. To have some piecemeal memory of that, but yes, I, I mostly just remember that he was like pretty good, and then like he just he like the whole bullpen after the Cubs knocked Eric Shaw out in eighty four, the whole bullpen then
0: just buttoned the Cubs down. Yeah. Lefferts was a big part of it. That, that the kind of Lefferts the trade from the Padres to the Giants. That trade involved a MVP,
1: Kevin, Kevin Mitchell,
0: Mitchell, a Cy Young winner, Mark Davis, and a guy whose arm fell off literally while he was pitching,
1: Dave Drabek. <laughs>
0: Former, uh, you know, it's funny. He's like the only guy who's really former left-hander, <laughs> Davey. <Gervecki. laughs> I know he's dead, but still, it's he is. Yeah, I think he's. Dead. That's all right, isn't he? Well,
1: we already made fun of heard him was getting actually cancer kind of and a having prick. his arm explode. What he was, what? I think
0: was, I heard he was was kind of a prick. Well, he was. Alive. He was he's alive. A, he's he was, alive. I killed was, him for no I, reason.
1: Yeah, I kind of, I kind of, pretty sure he was a bit of a like a zealot. Doesn't make him a bad guy, but you know, a little bit. uh a little bit uh, heavy on the Jesus juice, maybe, but a lot of those Padre pitchers were all conservative. Former lefty. Former lefty. I'd never heard that before.
0: So the Cubs um, had one winning month in 1983. That was June. They were 18 and 11.
1: Wow, uh-huh. up your up yours June swoon, yeah. doomers. Um, they were well, good, you know they it helped and blowouts.
0: They were 15 well, and, and it also
1: Helped that they won the first six games of the month. Yeah, and the last three.
0: Half their wins were right there.
1: Yeah, yeah. July looks a lot. I'm, I'm just like yeah. just from like a pattern. Right. They didn't finish strong. Twelve what and 17,
0: L's. 12 and seventeen, and, 12 and 16. Right. Minutes. So it One made it
1: made it over. easy for uh, for for uh, Green to you know to get rid of his old guy. From yeah, because Lee got
0: fired with thirty nine games to go.
1: Okay. Yeah. You remember who the Cubs you placed him with?
0: Oh, of course, Charlie Fox.
1: That's right. <laughs> There's a whole, there are a whole like different categories of like, there's the manager, then there's the interim manager for like two days, like Joe Tabelli, you know, and then there's the interim manager that you don't have a chance of coming back here next year. Yeah. Just please uh, come down from the office. And then there's like the Joe Almalfitano or Mike Quade. Yeah, we're pretty much selling the team and starting over. You can come back next year. And uh, Charlie Fox is really the one that, like, oh, yeah, you played uh, baseball with Gabby Hartnett. Can you, (laughs) like, run this team for 30 days and then just finish the season and we'll figure out what we're going to do, you know, when it's over?
0: Charlie retired with a winning record. He, uh, He had managed the Giants for four and a half years.
1: In the, in the 70s
0: 70, or 60s? In the 70s, from 1970, he got fired during the 74 season. They won the NL uh, West. Uh, yeah, 72, the, right? 71.
1: 71. So Charlie Fox took a team to the playoffs. I
0: didn't never. All right. And then he was—he uh, had not managed since 1976 when he was an interim in Montreal for 34 games.
1: Okay, probably before Dick Williams, maybe. He replaced all right.
0: The great Carl Kuhl. Oof! Okay. Seventy six Expos were bad. Carl Cool was forty three and eighty five when he got traded, or fired, and Charlie was twelve and twenty two filling in for him.
1: Okay, right. So he'd done the interim thing before.
0: And he went um, seventeen to twenty two with the Cubs. Not, not quite Mike Quaddy, so he couldn't keep his job. But <laughs> right, and don't think he was going to Green
1: had uh, Green had an opportunity to, uh, you know, he 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 was free and clear for his second hire. It was. It was too too bad that Lee. I think everyone kind of liked Lee. I remember my dad liked him because again, like you're right, we were kids, so we didn't always have the you know the most informed perspective. But you know nobody had it out for Lee Ilya. He kind of just hung himself.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, in that respect, <laughs> Charlie played in the Giants organization from 1947 to oh no, that's not right. That was his managerial record. When did he play? Oh, God. No. Good Lord.
1: Don't tell me he managed. In, uh, a Cub manager in the 80s actually managed in 47. That can't be right. He couldn't, he couldn't have been that He old. managed the he was...
0: Twins in the New York Giants organization in 1947. They were 64.
1: And Jesus <laughs> Let's yep. see, I knew he was old. Oof. I want to say he was number four at the Cubs, too. Um, wow. Wow. So wait, uh, do you still have his page up? I don't have it, but like, how? What was his birthday, or how? I mean, was he even older than I would have imagined? Yeah, he was a
0: young manager in '47. He was only 26. He was born in 1921.
1: He was an undistinguished player, and he was probably a smart guy by relative baseball terms, and got his way into you know those early days of. Yeah. So yeah. He, right, so he's six. in his sixties. Uh, sixties. Just about to turn sixty-three when he comes on down. Uh, well, he, did play, last, he did his, play. He did play in last the Matrix. He
0: played. Uh, uh, he grew up a newspaper boy in the shadow of the polo grounds. A catcher. He played briefly for the club in nineteen forty-two, hitting four twenty-nine. Okay. But then he, then he had to go. Have... Then he had to go fight was... the Germans.
2: All
1: right. Service served his time. God and bless him. When I, you he know, came back, he I w-
0: became a manager.
1: I was just kidding when I said that he played with Gabby Hartnett, but he would have very nearly, if not actually, crossed paths with Hartnett if he played as late as 42. So uh I guess my my hyperbole wasn't that far off. <laughs>
0: yeah, that, the 1942 Giants were uh, managed by Mel Ott. Okay. They finished third in the National League. They were eighty five and sixty seven.
1: Yeah, that's not talk about your Kevin Bacon. Who who did we just connect earlier? Uh Craig Lefford, so <laughs> here we go. Charlie Charlie Fox to Craig Lefford. Somehow, you know, we got it to Ricky Gutierrez. We got Charlie Fox to Ricky Gutierrez. So um yeah, I don't know if we can do any better than that.
0: I don't know. Let's see who, uh, quickly here. Who did he play with on the 42? Uh, oh, God, he got to change everything to New York Giants. Yeah. There we go.
1: I wonder, let's see. So, Mel Ott was the manager. Mel, Mel Ott was, was the, manager the manager. And
0: the outfield player manager.
1: The Giants weren't really that good, actually. Uh, they were good for decades before then, and would be when Willie Mays came on board. But
0: So, Charlie Fox played with, there he is, 429. He was... Uh, three, four, seven, with an oh. RBI. He played right. with Johnny Mize, Billy oh, Jurgis, yeah. Mel
1: Billy Jurgis was a cub in the uh, in the 20s. Yep. Billy Jurgis himself would have been old. He played
0: with 45. Carl Hubble. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> was this
1: 33. Is... Was Carl Hubble the guy in the 30, 1933 All-Star game who struck seven guys out in a row? I believe he was. That's great.
0: He was an all star in 33, yes. And the MVP of the. Yeah, because he struck National out League. seven. Like, no, I mean, he was Hall Hall MVP the MVP of the National League that year. But
1: Carl yeah. Hubble was, yeah. Carl Hubble. Giants, yeah. The Giants actually won the uh, World Series in 33. They beat the Senators. <laughs>
0: yeah, so, Charles, so we connected.
2: Uh, <laughs> well, we pretty far.
1: Craig back.
0: Lefferts to Carl Hubble and,
1: in two. And in Billy two. Jurgis. Well, the, right. And Billy Jurgis, too. Shot, Billy Jurgis, by the way, was shot by a woman uh, during the 1932 season. And the Cubs were good. And he was out for a while because you know, he was shot by a spurned lover, much like the natural. Yep. But unlike the Eddie Wakis, who was a Philadelphia Philly, who was shot in Chicago by a uh, crazed uh, spurned lover. But Billy Jurgis was out for a while. And so the Cubs made a deal with the New York Yankees for utility infielder Mark Koenig to replace Bill Jurgis till he convalesced. And Billy Jurgis came back and was the Cubs shortstop in the 1932 World Series when apparently the Cubs decided to stiff Mark Koenig oh, no. out of his playoff share, and Mark Koenig's ex teammate Babe Ruth in particular took particular umbrage at the Cubs' treatment toward his ex teammate. And uh, legend has it that was a part of the animosity underlying the 1932 World Series in which Ruth had his you know, alleged called shot. So we just bought Craig Lefferts all the way to Babe Ruth calling a shot off of Charlie Root. How you like that, kids? Yeah, you don't get that everywhere. But it's true. Craig Lefferts was managed by Charlie Fox, who played with well, not just Bill Jurgis, but now it's escaping me. We just mentioned it. The other Carl Hubbell, Carl, Carl Hubbell, right? The the MVP of the nineteen of the National League in nineteen thirty three. So <laughs> we brought Craig Lefferts to Carl Hubbell, two strokes. I didn't know if the uh, Chuck Rainey near no hitter was worth even like going into other than pointing it out because Chuck Rainey is nondescript. I did drop it in uh, for August 24th. I just remember that, boy, we really started school a lot later than kids do today because my kids are in school now, August 15th. I can remember being at Woodfield Mall on this date because my dad was buying me and then I was good and I had earned the right for my dad to purchase an Intellivision cartridge. Oh, Nice. Yes, and so I was very excited, and we stopped at the Hippos Hot Dogs at the old Hippodrome Plaza at uh, Higgins and, and Plum Grove Road. Long, long gone now. When the Cubs game began again, this is 1983. It's very much of a custom that in the summer you're doing things, you're running in and out of the house. You're maybe your dad's off of work for a day, and you go to a store, and like the Cubs game is almost always on because they didn't have lights. So if they're at home cubs around during the day so i remember watching the beginning of the game because pre-game vince lloyd and they're all oh this is it future hall of famer johnny bench this will be his last appearance at wrigley field you know the cubs and reds weren't rivals they're were in other divisions the reds were dominant in the 70s cubs sucked um you know so there really wasn't a whole lot uh there but johnny bench was a hall of famer they're building it up and um and that was – I remember, like, having the hot dog at Hippos, watching the first couple innings, and then, oh, I can't wait to get home so I can play Triple Threat, my new television game. And, and I was like, wait a second. We're in the fifth inning, and I found myself holding off on the video game as uh, as former Cub great Chuck Rainey just kept barreling through the Reds lineup. Uh, and it was exciting. I was 11 years old. I had never really – I remember listening on the radio the year before when Milk Wilcox came within one out of throwing a perfect game at Comiskey Park. Game at which my brother was at, but I was listening to it on the radio with my dad because, of course, uh, he had to listened to it on the radio because my dad would never buy Sports Vision, uh, which is you know how that you'd have to watch the Sox on television. Uh, so that's like the closest I'd come to like being around like a p- perfect game, no hitter, or seeing it live. And so uh, yeah, I was all over it. I was pretty stoked. And then Eddie Milner came up in the ninth, but that was uh, that was one of my more memorable games of the eighty three season. Not that I was there.
0: It was a oh. there were only two pitchers in the game.
1: Two complete games, just yeah. like the Kerry Wood, Shane Reynolds, do Mar-
0: Mario Soto.
1: Oh yeah, the only innings
0: because they didn't Cubs didn't need to bat. Yeah, you
1: know, wow, the Cubs didn't score until the six or seven. So Mario scattered
0: eleven hits and three walks. Yeah,
1: you know, Mario Soto was a, a kind of. Reaching, he was kind of at his peak. He was a really good pitcher for like a three, like a two to four, three to four year period. Like really good, like probably top four or five pitcher in the National League. But just not, not long enough where you know anyone under thirty five would consider him particularly noteworthy. Um, And Chuck Randy, I don't think anybody remember if he hadn't, if not for this day.
0: Yeah, it was scoreless going to the bottom of the sixth. Leon Durham led off with a triple and Keith Moore hit a sack fly. Um you Keith know, Cubs, the Cubs it, would it add a couple of runs in the seventh when Mel Hall doubled in Chuck Rainey and Gary Wheatz.
1: And boy Chuck. Yeah, Chuck. helping a, helping his own Chuck cause.
0: What so Chuck got as many hits as he gave up. That's right. Look at
1: that. That's right.
0: That was it, right? Three nothing. Yeah,
1: not, not not a very eventful game. I mean, you're seeing games like Paul Householder, who I mentioned got into a fight with Dickie Knowles in '82. Ron Oster, who was part of like this group of like decent second basemen, but they couldn't hold a candle to Sandberg all in the National League East. Remember Bill Doran, Johnny Ray, Johnny Ray. Tommy Herr, all these NL East second basemen that all like, you know, couldn't hold Sandberg's jock, but they weren't bad. And then there's Johnny Bench. And Johnny Bench's last... Oh, that was it. So, Johnny Bench, one of the very few base runners. In his very last Wrigley Field plate appearance, uh, Johnny Bench uh, did not have the balls to break up Chuck Rainey's no-hitter. And he took the walk. Yeah. He walked in the... uh,
0: Like the the sissy he was. He just stood (laughs) there.
1: Go play with the San Diego chicken, Johnny.
0: (laughs) So, yeah, the 83 Cubs are a... As you would expect, they're a lot... the shell of the 84 Cubs are there. You know, Jody Davis is the primary catcher. Sandberg is the shortstop. The great Larry Boa is at short. Ron Say is at third. Um, yeah, Ryan right. Durham, is, he was primarily the left fielder that year because Bill Buckner was still at first. He, hadn't, he didn't get traded until the next year for Dennis Eckersley.
1: Yeah, Keith
0: Moreland right. is no longer a catcher. He's now the right fielder.
1: Full-time, yeah. Jody pretty much took that job early in 82, but yeah. And,
0: and Mel Hall um, was the primary H- center fielder. He hit two eighty three with a three fifty two on base, a four eighty eight slug. He hit 17 I'm homers, see. drove in 56 runs.
1: I'm seeing that. That's pretty good.
0: And so no wonder. I remember, like, H- one of my friends was crushed when yeah. Mel got no, traded I to like- the Indians.
1: Mel Hall made his debut... I could be wrong. I'm going to look it up to make sure I'm not going crazy. I want to say his first major league at bat was in San Francisco's windy ass candlestick park during the day. And uh, if I'm wrong, I don't care, but I remember like my first, I had no idea. I didn't really, you know, we weren't really didn't know how to be prospect perverts back then, outside of maybe reading the sporting news box scores every week. So I didn't know anything about Mel He showed up and like, he kind of had the look of a good athlete and he was a lefty hitter. And yeah, he was, um, you know, I and mean, he was drafted. He was a second-round pick from the Cubs in '78, so he would have been, you know, uh, a legit prospect. I just remember that he kind of seemed like, yeah, this guy, he might be good. Uh, and I, 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 swear to God, like for the first time I saw him, it might not have been his first, uh, uh, his first plate appearance, but I remember just seeing him in a game in uh, in that shitty dump of a ballpark on the Bay in San Francisco. Uh, yeah, his actually his very first plate appearance was in San Francisco, so September third, late in the eighty-one season, and I know it was a day game, but he hit it in the corner, almost hit it out, uh, and then he kind of went up and down, up and down. Uh, but he was a good player, and he was obviously he had a, his probably one of his best seasons for the eighty-three Cubs. He had an eight forty OPS, which only trailed uh, Cub uh, the Cubs All Star that year, Leon Durham, who was eight forty seven, eight forty 840 is obviously pretty damn good for your first full season, which I assume it was for Mel Hall. What's interesting is that you're right. This is at least on offense. This is the 84 Cubs uh, without Buckner and Mel Hall. Everybody else is there. And they were going to run it back out the next year and it was before the uh the season started where dallas green was able to bring in a left fielder and a center fielder, a left fielder to put durham to first which squeezed buckner out which is one story that we'll talk about when we talk about 84 uh but the other one was a real center fielder i don't know if mel hall was really that good of an outfielder but he's listed as the main center fielder in 83 and he probably was um And they must add some flaws. And maybe there's some attitude issues, too. I don't know. But all I know is that Dernier is not not well... We'll get to that, but because I'm going to tell you something that kind of expedited this, is that Dernier – and we'll talk about it again in 84. I'm just going to throw it out here now just to close the chapter on Mel Hall. Is that uh, Dernier and Matthew show up, which which triggers Durham going to first and Buckner being on the hot seat. It also triggers Mel Hall moving over to right into a platoon with Moreland. Mm-hmm. And obviously Mel Hall was the better – he was the more saber-friendly. Saber he was the better player. He's the guy that you want to have. Moreland had his intangibles. But at one point early in the season, in 84, Mel Hall was starting to bitch a little bit about having to share time with Moreland. And uh, at some point, Dallas Green agreed and then got rid of Mel Hall. So, But, yeah, no, those are some good numbers. Struck out a lot, especially by 83 standards. Mel Hall
0: did in 83. The other thing Mel did, and he did it his whole career, was he would take extra batting gloves and put them in the back pockets of his of his pants with the gl- with the fingers sticking out, so that when he ran, they would like bounce. And he said it was that they would wave goodbye to the pitcher when he hit home runs. Uh, I don't know if you know what Mel's up to these days.
1: Oh, I don't think uh, it's good, and it's it's almost something I don't. I'm not even sure I want to talk about. But it's not like you know. He's uh, he's
0: in a Texas prison, which sounds yeah. like that would be fun. Serving a 45 yeah. year. Uh, sentence for raping a 12 year old girl that he coached in a youth basketball
1: team. basketball. Yeah, 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 just bad, icky, it's gross. pretty much
0: Barkevious Mingo all over again.
1: Yes, um, and by the way, Mel Hall's 840 OPS in 1983 as a 22 year old quasi center fielder would be by one point uh the career high for his ops so he you know cubs sold high
0: he finished third in rookie of the year voting that year he got
1: 83. he was he was still a rookie oh you know who the rookie of the year was, wasn't he? he had to be a dodger right nope, it was, it wasn't. no it was
0: strawberry it was, was Daryl strawberry, strawberry. And I think we all can agree that Mel Hall was a better player than Daryl Strawberry. <laughs>
1: well, Strawberry himself was a little, ultimately a little bit of a disappointment, yes. I think, based on early
0: projections.
1: Uh, but, yeah, a pretty ridiculous player for a while there. Uh, kind of like Mario Soto. It, it
0: doesn't look like Lee Ilya got any manager of the year votes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, he he turned a 5-14 and 14 team around. Tommy Lasorda to...
0: won, rookie, won manager of the year. Uh, Tony La Russa hate... won it in the uh, oh, managing the White Sox, just like he is right.
1: Look at all those dagos named Tony. Right, right. Like Tony, La... Tommy La is practically dead. Tony La Russa still
0: managing the White Sox. The Cubs had the uh, ninth. The guy who finished ninth in the Cy Young voting. Can you guess who that was? Um,
1: it's not Craig Luffertz. It wasn't Chuck uh, Well, I noticed Chuck Rainey was 13-10 and after that one hitter. He actually had a nice season. Uh, It wasn't Fergie,
0: right? It was the guy who led the National League in saves.
1: Oh, Lee Smith. Lee Lee Arthur.
0: Yep. Wow. John Denny won the... Uh, I do I that.
1: Yeah. I was like, what? Not Steve Carlton? So the the Phillies, Denny was, uh, he was also the American League Cy Young Award winner, or the uh, ERA leader in 82, because my 83 tops card showed me that. So he was teammates with Rick Sutcliffe on the Indians in 82. Finds his way to Philly, wins a Cy Young. Philly goes to the World Series that year. They finally won their first World Series three years earlier with Dallas Green at the helm. Uh, but then they would get, I believe, swept by the Orioles. And the White Sox, just to wrap a bonus, they lost to the Orioles that year. 83 was interesting in that perspective because it was uh, playoff baseball came to Chicago for the first time in uh, 24 years when the Sox won their division. And then the Cubs, of course, uh, as they're wont to do, immediately sort of uh, upstage them yes. the next year.
0: Um, <laughs> Dale Murphy won his second straight MVP.
1: So. Super 70 sports in particular uh, is like really pushing hard for Dale Murphy for the Hall of Fame. And I've never really felt that he was. And I don't know if this is a conversation worth having ever since Harold Baines got in. So you might as well put him in. But, man, he did. Dale Murphy did win back-to-back MVPs, 83 being the second one. That's, yeah.
0: And the thing about it is when he, he all of a sudden just fell off a cliff. But he didn't fall off a cliff until 1988. He was still, um, even as, as late as 87, he was an all-star, and he finished 11th in MVP voting. He had 295 with a 417 on base and a 580 OPS. So, so he's still
1: knocking the door on 1,000 OPS. From
0: like 1970 for a decade, for, from 77 to 87, um, he averaged... 33 homers, 99 RBIs. He had two seventy nine. Wow. He had an eight sixty-four uh, OPS. Um
1: That's and he, he played center field. To get in. He played he played center field too, right? Uh yeah, even with the non hero. Yeah, he was Baines. a
0: failed catcher who had uh Mackey Sasser right. disease. He couldn't he, throw the ball to the oh, Is that what it was? I didn't yep. know
1: that. Okay. Uh he was okay. I'm re-examining it now. That seems like a surefire haul, even without the Harold Baines lowering the bar. That's if you do anything like that for a decade, um, that's boy, that's it's hard not to make that case. Yeah. Uh, he
0: was actually really good from '79 to '87.
1: Speaking of uh, Mackie Sasser, do you know there were two people in 1983 that had issues with throwing the ball? to first base any of them spring to your mind not with the cubs though one was with the cubs but this there's a very celebrated case and let me just tell you that we in chicago enjoyed it immensely because uh we felt rightfully so as events in the next 10 years would prove out that he was a far inferior player to the one that we had at the same position Future
0: white sock steve Sachs.
1: yeah so sax was a rookie of the year in 82 the same year that Ryan was a rookie. I remember going to a game in 83 uh, with some of my brother's buddies. We took the L down and my brother had like some summer job downtown. We met him down there and I was just like 11. We had to go to Woodfield at like eight in the morning to get the tickets first, like a Tickettron or whatever, and then make our way down there. And it was a Dodgers game. I could probably, I don't know if I could find the day. It was probably, I think it was like a, you know, it was a weekday afternoon game because of, of course every game was an afternoon game and i just remember like one of the not a champ one of the heck one of the things that would be said around our house or we'd go to a game my brother would blurt it or one of the friends eat your heart out sacks like sacks was the pretty boy he was the all he was a rookie of the year in 82 he was the starting second baseman in the 83 All-Star game. You know, he he was like in L.A., Hollywood. He himself had, I guess, good looks. You know, him and Sandberg, they were, they were easy to make the comps. Sandberg was obviously dwarfed him as an athlete. But at the time, Steve Sachs, you know, kind of grinded our gears a little bit. We're like, screw that guy. Screw that offer. Fucking, we got Ryan Sandberg. And you know, this was not even, the 83 Sandberg was not anything to get excited about. He's a nice player. And he proved to be a really good second baseman before our eyes. He won the Gold Glove that year. But I remember like just feeling there was this sort of like, Sachs-Sandberg rivalry, at least in the heads of all of us meatball Chicagoans. And so it was around the time of the All-Star Game at Wrigley Field, or I meant Wrigley Field, at Comiskey Park in Chicago to commemorate the 50-year anniversary of the first All-Star Game, which is also at Comiskey Park in the same field, in the same stadium. Steve Sachs, I'm pretty sure, was still in the throws of what we just alluded to, the yips. And he could not make the throw to first base. And it was like a national thing because he was the, you know, he was the glory boy, L.A. second baseman. They were always, you know, in contention. Uh, and it was pretty much about after the All-Star break in 83 that Sandberg was pretty much start to pull away and eventually, you know, would get his just desserts. But I always always felt a little bit of resentment towards Steve Sachs because he had that built-in head start being a Dodger.
0: Well, I remember in 84, you know, Sandberg was having, he obviously was MVP, but he was having a great first half. And Sachs was ahead of him in the voting to start at second base. I remember that now. Good call. Miraculously, right at the last ballot, Sandberg passed him and got to start the All-Star game.
1: I remember like, I don't actually, I don't remember, but I guarantee you. I was probably roiling with rage at just Los Angeles and just everything about it. And they're, you know, coming to the games late and leaving early and and voting that pretty boy in when he was unworthy. But now Sandberg would take it and then nobody would even, you know, think of making that comparison after after that point. The other person, oddly enough, who had the case of the Yips, though, was a Cub. You might be too young to remember this. But I remember my friend Dave and I used to like practice this just making fun of him in the yard. But Fergie, <laughs> I swear had like four or five or six or seven cases where pitcher batter hit a ball right back to him. You know, and Harris is like, oh, right back to the pitcher. And Fergie would kind of like like fake toss a couple of times, and then he would just blow it over Buckner's head. He did that multiple times in eighty three. Who called the Fergie flip. So Matt is uh, Matt Garza. Yeah. Oh Matt Garza had that issue too. Oh yes, with the Cubs. I remember that now. Yeah. Of I course, mean, at it, least John it was,
0: Lester figured out like he could throw his glove to first. He could, you know, yeah, just basically either. let um, let the fielders field everything. But yeah, Garza was famous for throwing the ball up the line and r- wow. runners going everywhere.
1: It seems so strange that late in Fergus' career, you know, all of a sudden developed this glitch that would sabotage his own pitching efforts. Uh, and it seemed to be like 82, 83. Oh, and I made a reference to this and that you, there's no way you'll find it on the internet. Uh, I made a reference to this in a previous season, just tangentially, but I uh, just, for the record, 83 was the year I'm sure in which, um, the Cubs were playing the Expos and, uh, Gary Carter took umbrage at Bill Buckner and, uh, not a real fight broke out, but I just remember was that Bill, Bill Buckner kind of did. Perm? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But I loved it because I like, Bill Buckner did the old, like, put it, just put his glove it, right in that Carter's <laughs> face, you know? So I think you pointed out too was 83 was Buckner still because I we discovered that Buckner af, after winning the batting title in 1980 really had some even better seasons, like 81, 82. It seems kind of funny that, uh, that, that, uh, Dallas Green was really intent on.
0: Eighty-three was a, okay. kind of a. He was the only he hit two eighty, and he never had a great on base. He was three ten. Never did, slug. but
1: he never struck out as we discovered.
0: Yeah, he struck out thirty times <laughs> in one hundred and fifty-three games. Crazy. That might be Was that his, that might have been his career high? That seems high for Bill. And he was
1: a, he was a good um, defensive first base. Actually, baseman. that was
0: the most he ever struck out in a season for the Cubs was Unreal. 30 times. 30 times. Jesus Christ. He, he struck like out. Uh, he, was, he was a strikeout machine with the Red Sox. He struck out uh, 38 times in 84 and 36 uh, yeah. times
1: in 85. So, yeah, Leon Durham came up as a first baseman in the Cardinals organization. And so when, um, well, not Dallas Green, but Bob Kennedy traded Bruce Souter for him uh, just because he looked like he had a high upside and. and, and Durham did have some really fine seasons with the Cubs but and, and when Durham was an all-star with the Cubs and he was in an 83 and he was also an 82 I'm pretty sure both seasons he was an all-star as an outfielder they just you know they got him because he was a good player but they didn't really have a place for him and he played a fine outfield but that was the plan was to move Durham Durham to first but Buckner was only th- well, he was 33 in 83 but um oh, yeah. yeah it was yeah, kind of weird We'll talk right, and you know what? Yeah, it was probably a good impulse because Durham was a very good first baseman, his error in '84 notwithstanding. We'll talk about that a lot more. Billy Buck we, never we,
0: made an error in a big spot,
1: right? Exactly. Isn't that funny how how they're kind of weirdly linked there? But yeah, when we talk about '84, uh, we'll go into that more. But it was interesting because I'm still staring at that what the 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 starting eight was, and it's funny that you're. I never really considered that really that '83 team was the same as '84. Uh, with some slight upgrades, it wasn't even like major upgrades. Mel Hall probably had a higher OPS in '83 than Bob Dernier had in '84. Yeah. Um, and you know, Buckner had a 746. I mean, so it, it's it's just uh, I'm mean, kind of processing that because I hadn't really considered uh, uh, hadn't really considered that. I mean, maybe the big uh, difference anyway was pitching. That's really that's probably the big difference between '83 and '84. Obviously, it was.
0: Eighty-three Cubs still had Jerry Morales. Jesus, hit Jerry Morales,
1: second time around. Jerry Morales, yeah. right. First time around, that like your brother would remember. My my brothers remember was uh, the unlikely All Star in seventy-seven. Which we did. We did the seventy-seven season.
0: We did. It was a special, a special. Podcast. Yeah,
1: and Jerry was one of like eight All Stars, and then yeah, he left and came back, and so we get just like with Fergie, we got a we got a taste of Jerry Morales. Second time around,
0: no bueno. Uh, Tom Verizer in his glasses and yep, his Rex. I still specs, think of his word. baseball
1: card with the uh, with the Tigers. I think a '78 tops.
0: Scott Thompson with one T. Uh, yeah, about Steve Lake, uh, Thad Bosley, yep. Joe Carter played 23 games for the Cubs, hit 176. Yep. Obviously, he wasn't going to work out. I had to get rid of him. Yep. Wayne Nordhagen. Former White
1: Sox. I remember Wayne Nordhagen as a White Sox more than a Cub. I don't think I remember him at all
0: as a Cub. Uh, recently retired WGN sportscaster Dan Roan played 20, yes. Played in uh, 23 games for the Cubs. Spelled we'll his name different. That's weird.
1: Right. This is ROHN. Right. Yeah. He had to hide from the authorities before he resurfaced as a WGN sports guy. There is a Dan Roan, Dan Roan story. Maybe I should save it for 84 because Dan Roan actually hit a home run in the 84 season. Um, so we can come back to that, or actually talk about it now because there will be too much to talk yeah, about. I don't 84.
0: think it uh, probably isn't going to make the list of. The I, I'm
1: just going to say that Dan Rohn came to a game, came up to
0: uh, to to bat in a game in
1: '84, and he was one for ten, and you could just see his batting average was 100. It was in Candlestick Park, I'm pretty sure, and it was like, oh, how neat. That's when I I figured out math. Oh, one <laughs> for ten, 100, and then he hit a home run. Uh, That happened. But around the same time, Dan Rohn, Roan, R O A N, who is in the local news because he's retiring after having been the WGN sports guy for I don't know how many how many years. Thirty. But he what he yeah he was on the TV in eighty four and he had a story supposedly about. Dan Roan, the broadcaster, got confused with the ball player in their hotel rooms, and Dan Roan, the broadcaster's wife, was trying to get a hold of him I'll bet. and thought he was screwing around. <laughs> so there is a Dan Roan, Dan Roan story there involving this fella who was on the
0: 83 Cubs, ROHN. Uh, another guy who was uh, the hero of the uh, of a game in 84 when uh, Bruce Souter blew the lead twice, uh, Dave Owen. Right. He played 16 games for the 83 Cubs. Junior Kennedy was still around, 17 games.
1: That's uh, Steve Stone's street fighting Man, in fact, it might have been during the time that Buckner gloved uh, Gary Carter in the face that Steve Stone warned everybody, Junior Kennedy is a street fighting man.
0: Still don't know what that means. No. Still never heard that outside of the Stone song. Um, yeah. So as, as similar as the offense looked, the pitching staff did not quite look the same in from between 83 and 84. Yeah. Um, I know Dick Ruthven made a fair amount of start. He was basically the fifth starter in 84. He was there. And
1: the opening day starter in 84. It's oh, always right. been one of my favorite yes. fun
0: facts. And uh, Steve Trout was there in 83. Yeah. Uh, but no Rick Sutcliffe, no Scott Sanderson, no Dennis Eckersley.
1: Yeah, no, you're right. Even when 84 started, Chuck Rainey actually started the second. In 84, Dick Ruthven was the opening day starter. Chuck Rainey, still on the team early in 84, was the game-two starter. So, I don't know why Trout and Sanderson. Sanderson was probably on the disabled list because that's what he did. And Trout maybe got lost on its way to the ballpark. But nevertheless, um, even early in 84, the Cubs didn't seem to – you know, have the pitching that they would need, but they they certainly got it. it it's interesting though that you're right, Lee Smith, one sixty five ERA, son of a bitch. That that's his that's his season right there. Too bad that wasn't his eighty four season.
0: Yeah, it's funny he lost. He still managed to lose ten games.
1: He's probably like you know in his third inning. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and he basically took the closures role from Bill Campbell, who. Dallas Green sign. He was one of the big signings in the building a new tradition that we talked about in '82. Pretty much our first real closer after Souter, uh, but then yeah, quickly quickly taken over by Lee Smith.
0: Yeah. So lefferts got traded. Mike Proley um, pitched in sixty games. Warren Brewster had a good season, two thirty-five ERA in fifty-nine games. Yep. Rich Bordy was there. Probably should have been on the playoff roster in '84.
1: Correct. Well, there, I, I will make sure we talk about that. We we'll talk about '84. Gave his heart and soul to that team,
0: and, and Russell.
1: About, Rush, sorry.
0: Oh, I was just going to say, Guillermo Hernandez was there for right yes. for pitched eleven games and then got traded.
1: Well, because, you know, Willie was like, he was a, we, we kind of unearthed this. He was uh, brought up as a very young pitcher as far back as like 77, but he was also part of this cadre of pitchers that would eventually go on to enjoy really good success along with, you know, Bill Cottle and Jay Howell and, you know, Eckersley was maybe a different animal. Uh, and actually Hernandez shot further and brighter than any of them the very next season. And then I think you pointed out the reason you didn't really hear from him much after that was just that his arm was blown out. I think. Yeah. But yeah, Guillermo, it, it is crazy to think that the 1984 MVP and Cy Young was a at least for a brief period of time a
0: member of the '83 Cubs. Yeah. And of course, you remember the great Alan Hargesheimer.
1: No, but that name almost sounds like Atlee Hamaker, who was the pitcher in the All-Star game yeah. in Chicago that to this day has still given up the only Grand Slam.
0: Well, and Alan Hargesheimer... Former uh, Giant. Is a former Giant. Prospect. Maybe they yeah, had I trade him because it was <laughs> confusing. Atlee <laughs> Right, well,
1: and... all right, I'm going to Google because I'm going to find it. I know that there is a tops prospect. Three, you know, Remember, tops would have the three top prospects. You'd always be excited... When you see the Cubs, you're like, who the fuck is Mike O'Berry? I don't, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I think there was like a night around 1981 or 80, San Francisco Giants, three top prospects, and Al Har- Hargesheimer and Atley Hammaker were both on it. So that's what really.
0: How about thing. this? Alan Hargesheimer went to Sen, pitched to Truman College and Northeastern Illinois. Was
1: told Chicago. You went to Sen High School? Yep. You know who went to Sen High School but didn't graduate?
0: Mike North. Oh yeah, that's right.
1: <laughs> My parents used lived uh, right across the street from Sun right after they got married in 1962.
0: That's crazy. One of, I didn't know. He, I
1: had no idea he was a Chicago. He's guy. one
0: of two Sen grads to pitch in the big leagues. Also, the great Cliff Aberson, who pitched uh, from 1947 to
1: 1949. Oh uh, yeah. Can't, wow. Anyway, so he went no, to Sun. Yeah, excuse 40s. me.
0: Cliff played. He was a left fielder for the uh, for the Cubs. What do you know? Wow. Played 63 games in 3 years.
1: Local local guy. Like maybe a young Bob Kennedy was, you know, driving up just a few miles north of Wrigley to scout scout him over to Sunfields. He
0: was a big contributor to the 47 Cubs who went 69-85 under Charlie Grimm.
1: Okay, well, at least it wasn't Charlie Fox.
0: Could have been. Charlie was managing in
1: 1947. He was. He was indeed. <laughs>
0: Well, I think that's about all I got from the eighty three Cubs, I
1: think. Let's see. I, yeah, I'm I'm hoping I I was only uh, oh yeah. No, I was wrong. Al Hardesheimer. I found I found the card I was thinking of. Uh Attlee Hammaker, Hamaker was not one of the nineteen eighty one Giants future stars, uh along oh. with Al Hardisheimer I'm not even gonna bother to mention the other two because they never uh, amounted to anything. Uh so there's that. Yeah, I think we covered it. Um and if we didn't then so be it but uh, it was it was interesting that within 3 years Dallas Green would build a playoff team uh, 82 finally turned it around 83 got off to the slow start and sealed the manager's fate and maybe sealed the cubs' fate cuz i do i am sort of warming up to this alternate history that if Lee Ely doesn't lose his shit which would of course deprive us of some you know incredible comedy gold that maybe uh, the next few years go a little bit more in our direction than they did, but they were certainly going in our direction, and we weren't really prepared for it. But it was pretty awesome. And we'll talk about that when we talk about '84. But '83 was, you know, uh, a lot better than so many other just going nowhere seasons. They were trending in the right direction, you could say.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, they were, but we didn't. It, you would have been uh, forgiven if you didn't realize they were 71 and 91.
1: <laughs> well, right. just like all those teams in the 90s yeah. that's because they well yeah it was, it was it was so you're right it was a step backwards actually i mean Leilia. Yeah. yeah you know maybe dallas had to fire just because of not just a safe face with his rant but it was it it was a tough year they weren't ready coming out i guess uh i don't know i mean you go into the season with you know 39-year-old Fergie Jenkins is your open-day starter. I don't know, you know, but I'm not criticizing because they really had a rebuild to do, and they did it. So 71 and Hey, we did 80 and 81. And I don't – and thanks to the story. They might not have once I mean, those are two – would have been – one was a ninety-eight loss season, and the other would have been if it wouldn't for the strike. So, well, they had seventy-one, ninety-one. Is a they had a oh, terrible oh.
0: pitching. They had terrible pitching because their offense. They ranked in the National League. They were second in runs, second in doubles, third in homers. Uh, they led the league in slugging. Um, but then you get to wow. pitching and ERA. They were twelfth. They were. Uh, they were 12th in a lot of stuff. They were 12th in hits, allowed 12th in runs. So, they, you know, it's and, funny that. And it, and it, it makes sense because you look at that, the 83 lineup, and you're like, wow, except Good for. Good players. Except for, right. like, Gary Matthews and um, Bob Dornier. They're all there in some yeah. fashion. But the pitching, outside they, of... they, re, they overhauled the whole thing. Well, that's why they had to do that.
1: But it took a while because uh, outside of Scott Sanderson in the off season, Green, you know, didn't do a whole lot. He picks up Dernier and Matthews, and as we all famously know, Sutcliffe and Eckersley were acquired after the season, which, which, you know, maybe credit to Green that he didn't freak out and pay. He waited a little. Because it was weird. We'll talk about 84. It was weird when opening day 84 happened and Bill Buckner was on the bench. It was like kind of like the, the gorilla or the elephant in the room. Like, oh, my God, Bill Buckner's – like, he's good. And it's not like Durham was bad. I mean, he was basically losing bench – he was losing time – To Gary uh, Matthews. To Gary, who the recently acquired Gary Matthews, right. And uh, and that was just a numbers game. But it seemed weird because he didn't fall off the cliff. You're right. He started to drop a little bit in 83. So, again, maybe credit for Green for not being sentimental and just being like, fuck it, you know. Uh, I can make some moves here, and I can move Durham to his natural position. And Buckner's going to have to get over. Buckner was always a little bit of a surly guy, and he, he was—I don't think he was very pleasant that first month in '84. And but he wasn't traded for Eckersley until like, or he was traded for Eckersley kind of early like in May. And then you know the Suckliff trade was the other piece. But um, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, all right. That's the. That's the '83 Cubs. If uh, if you're out there and you're like, I got other stories. We'll start your own podcast,
1: <laughs> right? I'm sure we missed a few, but yeah. we got to go to bed.
0: Yeah. Well, all right. Well. Good night, Mike.
1: Yeah. <laughs> good night, Andy. I'm going to have dreams of uh, of the Carmelo Martinez, uh, the first. it was exciting. Because I remember being like, Oh, why couldn't it have been the first time he came up? No, but it is his first official at bat because he walked the first time up. So,
0: I'll I'll uh, I'll just bathe in the memory of that, and then
1: you know, go from there.
0: Yeah. Well, there's better better memories of Mel Hall than others you could have. So right. Yeah.
1: I'll stick with Melo Carmelo.
0: Yeah. All
1: right. Many of us have herpes.